Now to 1 John, the third chapter. We've come to a, an interesting section of this book and, and in this chapter today, as we, last week we made it through verse 9 and we're picking up with verse 10. John here addresses the question of how do you know you're a Christian, basically? It's, there are a whole lot of people who claim to know God. There are a whole lot of people who claim to be believers in Jesus. I, uh, you know, when I was on my way to the airport after I parked my car um, earlier this week, a young man who took me from the, this cheap parking garage to the airport was uh, talking to me and, and he was a Muslim. And he was just going on and on. I'd, he asked me where I was going, what I was doing, and I shared with him. And, and he, was, he said, you know, Christians and Muslims are alike. And I go, oh, really? How's that? He goes, well, because we both believe that Jesus is a prophet. The Jews, they don't believe that. <laughs> and so it was just interesting having this discussion with them. And I said, oh, so you believe that Jesus died for your sins then and, and rose from the dead? He goes, well, no, that's one slight difference. <laughs> I go, well, you know, it's not a slight difference. That's kind of what matters to us. But, um, and then we pulled up to the terminal too, and that was the end of the conversation. But most people in our country profess to be Christians. But if being a Christian is what determines your eternity, I think it's pretty important for you to have a good handle on, am I really right with God? How am I doing with God? I, I sometimes ask people, so where are you at with the Lord? How are you doing with the Lord? And most of us have that question kind of milling around in our minds, even those who have really put their faith in Jesus. Okay, really, how am I doing in terms of my relationship with him? And here, John answers that, and he makes it clear how you know where you stand with God, and then he goes on to explain a bit more of, of how that looks and what it means. And so, beginning with verse 10, and we'll first look at these uh, verses 10 through 15. He says, in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Now that's pretty harsh. He says, you have to understand there are two types of people. There are people who are children of God and people who are children of the devil. Now he isn't necessarily just making a division between people who are regenerate and people who aren't necessarily. But what he's saying is everything you do is either something that is of God or it's something that the devil wants you to do. Every decision that you make is either going to go toward what God wants or it's going to be something that's destructive that the devil wants. And he says, here's how you can tell the difference. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Don't marvel, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, if you tend to veer off after you sit for a while and you plan on napping this morning, 
Let me give you the Cliff Notes version. The way you know you're right with God is because you love people. That's what John's saying. It's a recurring theme throughout this book and something that Jesus talked a lot and it impressed John so much that he recorded much of that in the Gospel of John as well. It's all about whether you love people that demonstrates whether or not you're right with God. Now, as he goes into that discussion, remember, it's whoever, in verse 10 there, it says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Now, the word nor there is actually the conjunction chi, which is almost always translated and. And so he's putting these things together. Doing righteousness, loving your brother, those are, that's a package. That's something that works out together. And he says, ultimately, that whole package, and again, <clears throat> as we talked about last week, he, John uses the, what we call the linear present tense. And he's talking about the flow of action of your life. He's not saying that if you ever love anyone, then you must be of God. Or if you ever hate anyone, you must not be of God. Because even the most, the most godly, loving people that you know, once in a while will find something to hate. <laughs> once in a while, they're just going to find somebody who's difficult to love. At the same time, the worst person in the world <coughs> is capable of having love for certain selective things. You know, even Adolf Hitler might have loved his dog. I don't know. I'm not sure of that. But <coughs> what he's saying is, this is what characterizes your life. This is the flow of how you live your life. So you are either, and he's not like, okay, 51, 49, but the idea is, no, you look at your life, and if you see that what characterizes your life is that you care for people, then that's something that is indicating that you're right with God. You're walking with him. But if the flow of your life tends more toward, you know, um, hatred, bitterness, anger, and things like that, then you have reason to be concerned. <clears throat> and this isn't something that was new. This is something that he, he makes it clear. This was true, you know, from the beginning. Going back to Cain and Abel, the, the first two children of Adam and Eve, and he uses this as an illustration, they both brought a sacrifice to God. God had specified what he wanted for a sacrifice, and Abel offered the proper sacrifice. Now Cain, on the other hand, came and offered a sacrifice that wasn't acceptable to God. As it happens, I, I love the fact that God said, you know what, I don't want vegetables. I just... I will not, you know, bring me a plate of vegetables and say, this is for you, God. He goes, I want meat. Um, you can make whatever you want out of that, but I try to be as godly as I can. But the idea was Cain was bitter against his brother because his brother was blessed because of giving the right sacrifice. Now, Cain could have gone and changed and brought back an acceptable sacrifice, but instead he got angry and killed his brother. So from the very beginning, being right with God is tied into whether or not you care for your brother. When, when God came to Cain and asked, hey, where's Abel? 
And Cain said, what, am I my brother's keeper? The obvious implied answer is, of course you're your brother's keeper. Of course you should care about others. And so John is you know, laying this out here and saying, this is the message that was around from the beginning. Love other people. Care about them. It's really what the whole law was about. And you know, notice that he lumps in practicing righteousness and loving your brother as one basic unit. See, every commandment that God ever gave was ultimately about this. It was, this is what God has been trying to do from the very beginning, is to cause us to care for him and for each other. You have all those rules of the law, and Jesus, in commenting on those, when someone said, so what's the greatest commandment? He said, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Shema, that was no surprise to them. But he said the second is the same thing. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you love God, you'll love people. And so, and Jesus said, in that is the summary of the whole law. Everything that God ever told anybody, the, the short version of it is he's telling us to love each other. He's telling us, if you love me, love the people I created. Care about them. And this is just so basic, and it, and it so gets to the point of what will identify you as somebody who knows God or somebody who doesn't, because this happens, this trend starts to happen. Now, it's a process, but it's a glorious process when you see people who go from really not caring to then really beginning to care. And again, this is totally different than having the correct theology. There are a whole lot of people who have great theology, they know all the right things, they go, yep, I believe this, 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 and this. They've sat in church all their lives, but if it doesn't turn into love for other people, it means nothing. The demons have great theology. They absolutely are convinced of every right position. The demons know that the scripture is infallible and inerrant. They know that Jesus is God. They know that God is a triune being. They know that Jesus will return. They, in fact, even know that they are doomed. And, and yet, that didn't change them. That didn't save them. And, you know, there are a whole lot of people who did a lot of good things and talked a good game in the New Testament that never came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. So this sounds almost simplistic, but it's powerful. That if we want to know how we're doing with God, we simply look at whether or not we care about others, whether we love others. Now, he goes on now in, in uh, these further verses. Well, first of all, in verse 14, I'll call your attention to this we know that, well, earlier he said, you know, Cain hated Abel, so people are going to hate you. And then he says, we know that we have passed from death to life. The normal transition is to go from life to death, but Jesus turned that upside down and says, you can actually go from death to life. We know that that's happened because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. And if you hate your brother... You're just like a murderer. You're having that same kind of, of response that ultimately, if you could get away with it, you'd kill him. 
And Jesus had said this in the Sermon on the Mount as well. If you hate your brother, it's just like killing him. And so now we have a pretty simple statement. Okay, and, and, and we could just stop right here and just go, so there you go. That's the message for the day. If you know God, you'll be a loving person. If you're not a loving person, if you're a jerk, you don't know God, thank you very much, you're dismissed. But with all of us, there's this nebulous sort of thing of going, well, now wait a minute, because there are gradations here. And, and you know, there are a lot of people who, who say they're loving, but I can't see it. There are other people who seem to be loving, but they're faking it. And so he now, in the rest of, these, of this chapter, he, he zeroes in on it a little more and helps to clarify some of these things. And so he says in verse 16, by this we know love. Here's what we know about love. Because Jesus laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That word for life is the word suke in the Greek. It's, we talk about psyche. It's, it's usually translated soul. It means your breath, literally. Generally, it's the immaterial part of you, your what you think, your mind, your will, what you choose, your emotions, what you're feeling. And, and so thinking, feeling, wanting are matters of the suke. And he says, here's how we discovered love. Jesus Christ gave up his own self-interest. Jesus Christ was willing to make a sacrifice on our behalf. We couldn't pay him back. There's nothing in it for him. He simply emptied himself, as Paul described over in Philippians 2, when he said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being God, didn't hang on to the fact that he was God, but he emptied himself. He, he, he released all of his divine prerogatives. He was still God, but he gave up all of his rights as God. He became a man. He humbled himself as a servant finally submitted himself to the death of the cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. And Paul says, you do the same thing. And so here, John is saying, you want to see love, look at the cross. Look at what Jesus did for us. And there is no better picture of it. Paul said this over in Romans 5.8 when he said, God showed his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we had nothing to give, nothing to offer, he realized that we had a need. He knew that he could fulfill that need. It was going to be a huge sacrifice on his part, but he would have to, for the first time in all of eternity, God would have to say, I need to do something that I don't want to do. I need to do something that's going to feel horrible. I need to do something because the need is there and I have, there's nothing in it for me, but I'm going to do this. And that's how we discover what love is. And so John says, that's how we know love, laying down your soul. And we also ought to lay down our souls, our psyche, our lives for the brethren. So now he says, if you want to know what love looks like, it looks like Jesus. Now, what are you willing to let go of? 
What are you willing to act contrary to your own self-interest in order to help someone who really can't help you back? Now, this becomes difficult because when you love somebody who can't love you back, eventually (laughs) it ends up helping you. You end up being blessed and it's great and you have this mutual relationship that forms. It's one of the reasons why it's important to continue to look for new ways and new people to reach out to. Because when you plant those seeds of love, it grows and all of a sudden it's very gratifying. But we don't love others to get them to love us back. We love others because they can't do anything for us and that's how love works. And experiencing that unconditional love is what allows us to tap into understanding what he has done for us. So he says, love looks like laying your life on the line for someone else. Now, I mean... God calls himself our heavenly father because so often that's the closest sort of relationship that we can find to this when we have children. And we've talked about this before. It's a favorite theme of John about us being children of God. We saw it just last week as he said, you know, now we're the sons of God. Hasn't yet appeared what we're going to be, but that changes us, he said. Well, in the same way as I talked about last week, when you hold a baby, your child or your grandchild, something happens. That kid can do nothing for you. There's a real good chance that kid's never going to do anything. To <laughs> I think my kids come third service. You know, to actually do something for you, you don't need them. It's pathetic if you, you know, if you have kids because, yeah, you want somebody to take care of you or something. Um, that would be weird. But, but you, you see, this, this person... I would give my life for them. What would you give your life for? What would you say, and not necessarily just die for, because the truth is, most of us will never have an opportunity to literally die for someone. Um, But what would you be willing to risk your life for? Would you be able to do something that takes your life and jeopardizes it in some way? Even if it means, okay, yeah, if you're going to go down to Mexico and help with the shoebox outreach, there is a greater chance that something devastating could happen to you in Mexico than at the mall here at South Coast Plaza. I mean, it's just logical. The chances are when you're out there in the mud of Pedregales, it's a little more dangerous than standing in Nordstrom's. Although I understand as we get closer to Christmas, that's a legitimate hazard as well. But we, he's laying this grand thing out of like, hey, what are you willing to risk your life for? Who are you willing to risk your life for? But then he really meddles because he takes it from that grand concept that we can all fantasize that, oh yeah, you know, there are a lot of people, I, if I saw somebody in front of a train, I'd throw myself into, we've all kind of dreamed about that kind of thing. But look at how he goes on, he says, but whoever has this world's goods, you have stuff, and you see your brother who's in need, he doesn't have stuff, and you shut up your heart from him, how does the love of God abide? in you. Whoa. See, love is actually demonstrated in small ways, not usually in big, magnificent ways. It's the little things that show love. 
In this case, it's someone who is able to help someone out and you choose whether you are willing to open your heart to that need. Now, the word there where it says shuts up his heart, the word there for shut up is the word literally that means slams the door. He isn't saying that every time you have something and someone else doesn't have it, you should give it to them. Not even that every time someone asks you for something, you should give it to them. To do that is a recipe for now you being the one who's out there trying to panhandle off other people. But the question is the heart. Are you willing to be open to the fact that God wants you sometimes to sacrificially give to help somebody else, to make a difference in their lives. Now, ultimately, it's always so rewarding that it's a joke to even think about. It's difficult. And I saw this, you know, being down there in El Salvador and seeing some of these churches that we um, purchased the land for the church or we helped pay for their building or things like that. Or just thinking about over in Cambodia just this last month, we gave money to build um, the building for the Bible college and ministry school down there. And you guys all did that if you contribute to our church. Um, we get blessed by being able to do that. But it, often when we've done that, it's been deliberately at a time when we were struggling. Like before we could buy a building for our church and I was shopping, I couldn't find anything. Well, we were down there in, in El Salvador at a little city called Zacatecaluca, and these guys they had this cool little church, but it was meeting in a horrible place, bars and everything all around, and they were saving up their money to buy a piece of property. And so, but they said they were selling uh, pupusas, these little tortilla things on the street, and, and I asked the pastor, Jaime, I said, what do, you, what do you sell these for? Where, where does the profit go? And he says, oh, we're saving up for a down payment on our church. And I said, well, how much do you need for a down payment? And he goes, oh, $5,000. I'm like, that would pay our electric bill for a couple months, you know? And here we're looking for a building, and we could help them do that. And so it didn't even, before I even talked to the board, I said, we'll take care of it. And I figured if, they, if the board doesn't want to do it, I'll do it. But the board was happy to do it. And so now these guys have this property. And then when we started expanding, they needed to expand too. It was so easy for us to help them compared to, you know, I mean, there's one guy at the city that makes more money than everything we've ever given for these kinds of projects. But see, what happens is, we have to decide, am I open to this or am I not? And, and, but again, just because somebody asks you for something, you don't have to give it to them just because you can. Anybody who comes and quotes this verse and says, now, ante up. Remember, <laughs> this is about love. Now, here's the thing. If someone is asking you for something, ask yourself, is helping them really the loving thing? See, if someone is in need because they don't work, for instance, and they're not really trying to, um, is it the loving thing to then help support them just because you have stuff and they don't? Of course not. Until once people quit helping them, maybe they'll start to help themselves. Some of us, I'm sure, have relatives that sponge off of us. It, it rarely does any good. It only builds up a dependency. 
But here's the question. Even with those extreme situations, what tells us who we are is if we're open. Do I just, and you know, in general, I would say I don't give money to people standing out on the street corners holding a sign. I just, I don't like to encourage that kind of behavior. But I have given them money. And, you know, quite often I'll give money to a panhandler and I don't worry what they're going to do with it. I just try to listen to the Lord. The question is, am I open to doing that? Because this is really all about the heart. Am I considering this? When I go and I see a need somewhere, when I hear about an outreach or a ministry, am I even open? Am I going to even ask God, God, is this something, I could do this, but I can't do everything, but is this something that is a priority for you to have me do it? And if you open your heart, God will show you whether you're supposed to do it or not. But here John is saying, hey, if your heart is shut, if you slam the door on giving, on supporting church, supporting ministry, helping people who can't help you, just reaching out and giving somebody a hand. If you just slam the door of your heart to that, there's something seriously wrong with your heart because you are exhibiting selfish behavior. You are exhibiting that which is completely contradictory to what love is. And again, love is everything. That's the, that's the litmus test of whether or not you're right with God. He says, verse 18, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And this goes back to where he said earlier, practicing righteousness and loving your brother, which he joins together. And now again, he says, look, talk is cheap. When I'm talking about love, I'm not talking about saying I love you. That's easy. Love is something that demands a response. And you only really know it when you're willing to actually do something and reach out. It's deeds, it's not just words. However, it is not only deeds. And I've heard plenty of of pastors say things, and I'm sure that if I searched my tapes, I've probably said the same thing. You know, love is an action. Love is a choice. Love is what you do. Well, that's not, as I was praying about this passage, I realized that's not strictly true. Because if love was simply a choice or an action, then the Pharisees would have been the most loving people in Jesus' day. Just because you do something for somebody else doesn't mean you love them. Loving them is something that comes from your heart. It is It's not just a warm feeling, but at the same time, it's a motivating factor behind what you do. And you can give everything that you have, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, give everything that you have to feed the poor, and you can give your body to be burned and not have love. But what he's saying here is if the love is there, if the selflessness is there, then you'll discover that it turns into what you do. And he says, in deed and in truth, that means it's sincere. It's not giving just for a write-off. It's not giving because, boy, people will appreciate me. It's not giving so that they'll put my name on a plaque somewhere. It's an honest, loving willingness to make sacrifices to help others, to care about others. And so he says, this is what love looks like. It's a heart that's open to helping others. 
And then beginning with verse 19, he says, And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. In this next section, he talks about how reassuring love is. Unless there's something seriously wrong with you, you probably sometimes wonder where you're at with the Lord. You probably look at your own heart and go, I don't know if I'm ever doing anything selfless. I'm not sure if I'm loving enough. So now John turns his attention to this and says, look, I'm not trying to bum you out and make you feel guilty. I'm not going to take an offering at the end of this. But he says, look, this is how we know we're of the truth and we can assure our hearts before him for, verse 20, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Sometimes our heart will condemn us. We will have thoughts inside that say, you are not good enough. Ideas that go through our head that, and they come from all kinds of places. Let's face it. Most of us grew up and have listened to people constantly marginalizing us. Every day there are people who treat us like we don't exist, like we're either too young or too old or disqualified or whatever. And, and so we all get that tendency to condemn ourselves. And so John says, just because you feel that way, don't go with that. Listen to what God says because he knows everything. He knows what no one else can know. And, and so you can find assurance even though your head has these voices that are telling you that you're bad, that you don't love, that you don't care. Now, again, I don't want to say that everyone who's, who's feeling condemned ought to feel like, no, nah, don't worry, it's okay. God knows. No, God knows whether it's there or not. Now, in general, I would say that if you're reading this passage and your thought is, boy, I'm glad that Dave is saying this today because I know some people who really need to hear this. I'm going to pick up 10 CDs afterwards and send them to all my kids that never call, you know. And it, you know, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this and give it away on the street corner with a sign that says, you know, won't work for food. But, but you know, he's, he, what he's saying is that there are, oh, by the way, I think the people who probably your heart is right is if you're really questioning. You're going, wow, this is heavy. Ah. I'm not sure I'm loving. Now, if you're judging others and you're pretty confident in yourself, you're probably going to hell. But if you, <laughs> but if you go, I want this. I want this reality in my life. Um, then maybe you need to listen to God saying, I know your heart. And, 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 but he goes on and says, beloved, you're loved. If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. In other words, you go from a point where you're going, I feel so awful, I feel so condemned, I feel like such a loser, I think Dave just told me I'm going to hell. <laughs> and then you go, but wait a minute. And you look at your life and you say, with all my frailty, I deeply care about people. I know I love them. And I know I am making sacrifices for them. Then John is saying, when you listen to that, you will go, wow. 
you know what? Those voices in my head are going away. That condemnation that I've been feeling that says, you're not doing enough, you're not good enough, you don't care enough. I'm confronted with the fact that actually I deeply care. I really do. And though I'm not perfect and though I struggle, the truth is I can see people who are greatly in need and I want to help them. And when I find a way to do it, I do that. Perfect? Of course not. If you think you're perfect, you miss the whole point. But to get to the point where you say, I'm going to believe what God says, and therefore I'm going to stop beating myself up. I'm going to stop feeling guilty when, you know, I get a, a double burger and there's somebody who can't afford a single, you know. But he goes, you know, if our heart doesn't condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And that's the real question. Where's your confidence? Is it trusting him? Is it believing what he has done? If so, you will see the transformation in your life. You will see the love of God working in your life. And then secondly, he says in verse 22, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. So he says, a second thing that you see, not only does your heart go from condemnation to faith in him to your heart really feeling relief, but he said, secondly, you start praying, and God starts answering your prayers. Now, this isn't a big deal because it's a way to get what you want. The reason why prayer is so important to God is prayer says, I can't do it. Prayer says, I need you. And it's probably one of the best things that those little babies that you used to have have ever done for you is that they grow up and cause you to realize you need to pray. And, <laughs> and see, it's that act of submission to God that says, I don't know, I need you. And the great thing is, when you have a relationship with him, and you are loving as he calls you to, and you are loving others as he loves you, then your prayer life just comes alive, and you begin to see results. You see exciting things happening, because you're lining your life up with his plan, and good stuff happens. And so he says, if that, if that happens, you, you ask, and you receive, because you're doing what he wants you to do, which is loving people. And again, his commandment is this. Believe on the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. It's not enough just to love. You don't just go, okay, if you're loving, that's it. No, you have to be loving in the name of Jesus. You, there are people, there's some people who are very compassionate who don't know Jesus. You can't get saved without Jesus, according to what Jesus says. But he says... Put your faith in the Son of God and love people. And when that happens, you're doing what you're supposed to do. You're fulfilling his plan for your life. You are obeying his commandments. All the other rules and everything all came down to this. And he says, I'll make it easy for you. Have you accepted Jesus Christ? And do you care about others? And if you do, you should feel fine about where you're at. Now, you're not perfect, but are you moving in this direction? Does it, seems like, does it seem like you're growing? I, I have the privilege of seeing people grow in the Lord. 
And as a pastor, there's nothing that blesses me more than to see somebody, maybe somebody who's not even a Christian, and then they come to the Lord, and I see them growing. But uh, some of my favorites are people who, like, always believed, and they always went to church and everything, but I see God working in their life, and all of a sudden, they're doing things that are uncomfortable. All of a sudden, they are doing things that are extra. All of a sudden, they're reaching out to people and taking chances with people. And when I see that, I I am so thankful to the Lord because that's the sign that he is at work. And if our church is going to be what God wants us to be, then increasingly we should be hearing that when people come here, they really feel like people care about them. It's one of the reasons why I push home fellowships so much. That's just such an easy, concrete way to connect with others. Now, Maybe you're in a fellowship with other people. You don't have to go to one of ours. There's nothing magic about ours. Well, ours are superior because they discuss what I said this week. But <laughs> it's that idea of connecting with others and caring about them and loving them. And when that's happening, when you care about people who can't care back, then you know you're on the right track. That's working. But if your life is all about you, and once in a while you'll toss a few bucks toward the Lord or toward somebody else just so you feel less guilty, um, but it's not really coming from an honest heart of, of wanting to give to others and bless them and help them, then John would say, you ought to be a little nervous. You should be a bit concerned. And then finally in verse 24, he says, now he who keeps his commandments, he who loves abides in him, you're going to stay plugged into him, and God stays in you, you are secure, and by this we know that he abides in us. Here's how you know God is in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Finally, the only way this happens is because of the Holy Spirit. When you come to Jesus and confess your sins and and you open your life up to him, the Holy Spirit comes inside you. But you choose whether you're going to listen to him or not. You choose whether you're going to let him help you to grow. The Holy Spirit can be in you and not be in complete control. So we're commanded to continuously be filled with the Spirit, to let him make the moves. Our job is to go, God, I'm open. I'm ready. My mind, will, emotions, they're all out there on the table. Everything I own, I'm laying it out before you. I need your wisdom. I want your love. See, the fruit of the Spirit, Paul says, is love. It's not just a commandment. It's something, it's a commandment that you can't possibly obey without the Spirit of God working in you. And so for any of us, the remedy of going, "Uh uh-oh, I'm taking this little litmus test, I'm wondering whether I'm right with God, and I'm coming up with some alarms going off. Most of what I do is selfishly motivated. I really don't care when I see someone in need. Then what John would say and what I would encourage you in is maybe you need to just get alone with God and ask his spirit to fill you. Maybe you don't even know God. Maybe you've just gone to church and you know enough stuff and you know all the people and you like the donuts, but you've never actually come to a point whereby you let him take control of your life. And so people may even think you're loving, but the truth is you're doing what you're doing because you like what it gets for you. What you need to do is come to him and make sure that you're his child. 
Make sure that you've asked him to come inside your life. And if you've done that and you know you've done it and yet you're still just saying, I don't know, I'm not very caring. I really, I'm, I, don't, I don't care that much about other people. I care more about me than I do about everybody else put together. Then it's time to go to him and say, God, I need you to fill me with your spirit. So that that love and joy and peace and patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, discipline, all those things start to function in my life because the Spirit of God is driving. I don't want anybody to take this passage and go, okay, I got my work cut out for me, I need to love. Well, you need the power of the Spirit in your life, that's it. And you'll just know it's working when you start being surprised at what you care about. Surprised at who you care about. Surprised at what you are considering doing with what you have. And that's, it's that simple. Christianity is not a religion whereby you just need to do a bunch of stuff in order to gain standing with God. Christianity is a simple response to the gift of the Son of God for us. And it's just as natural supernaturally natural as it could be, as we see that he loves us, we respond to that love, we just start caring more. If that's not happening, go to the source and get it right. If you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus after the service, there'll be people down here in the front who would just love to pray with you. Great news, your life can start over today. Jesus died for you and he loves you very much. Or if you're here and you just go, you know what, I've, I'm a real uncaring person. People always tell me that. I just thought it was my personality. Come down here and get some prayer that God's Spirit will just start working in a fresh way in your life. But for all of us, this is a process. This is something whereby we look at and go, I want more of that. I, I want to grow in that way. And I pray that this week will be a time when we do just that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and for your spirit. Thank you for your example and for John's concise explanation here of how we can know if we're right with you or not. So Lord, deal with our hearts where we need it. Continue to teach us and help us to grow. God, we're so thankful for people you've brought into our lives who cared about us when we couldn't do anything for them and it taught us your love. Help us to pass that on to others. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.